The Munich air disaster on February the 6th, 1958, will forever remain one of the most important days in Manchester United history. The tragedy claimed the lives of 23 passengers, among whom were eight United players and three members of staff who were travelling back home via Germany from Yugoslavia, where the club had just celebrated winning their European Cup quarter-final tie with Red Star Belgrade. Jeff Bent, Roger Byrne, Eddie Coleman, Duncan Edwards, Mark Jones, David Pegg, Tommy Taylor, and Liam, also known as Billy Whelan, all perished, as did Walter Crickmer, Tom Curry, and Bert Wally. This edition of the Manchester United podcast takes a look at the tragedy through the eyes of Bill Foulkes, who, of course, would go on to win the European Cup ten years after the disaster. It was such a traumatic uh, time for me, personally. And also Jackie Blanchflower and Albert Scanlon. was probably the best I've ever seen United play. I knew something had happened, but I didn't, I didn't know it was so serious. Who, along with Bill, gave rare interviews about what happened in Munich. Some of the following details may of course be upsetting to listeners and are presented as they were told by the survivors to the journalist Tom Tyrrell in February 1998 for educational purposes. We begin with Jackie Blanchflower, who describes United's very first games in European competition. You took the, the first steps in Europe with United. Now, was that an exciting time to, to be playing in European football? Oh, yes, yes. I remember well, 1956, uh, when we, we played Anderlecht. We were drawn away against that. We had a quite, quite a good side then. Uh, and, and we had to go there first. Uh, and we, uh, we had a lot, a lot of the lads were in the army at that time. Duncan Edwards, I took Duncan Edwards' place that night. Eddie Coleman was in the army. Uh, they could get off to play on a Saturday, but during during the week it was it was more difficult. But we had a big squad then, and we beat Anderlecht two two nil. And then the the re, re, return game at Old Trafford was probably the best I've ever seen United play. Main road, I, I got should have been Old Trafford, but it was Main Road. <laughs> it'd been Old Trafford. They might have had a bit of chance because we had no floodlights at Old Trafford then. Players in the dark. Put a bell in the ball, and they still wouldn't have got all of it. Yes, and that was that was that was a great a great occasion. And then after that, it was Borussia Dortmund, and then Real Madrid itself in the semi final. That was a sole object to win the European Cup. People say the Busby Babes. There was about twenty to five players. It was like a player to cover every position. Many, many world-class players. Uh, Roger Byrne. Uh, Roger Byrne was a perfect gentleman, Some. Uh, he was also a perfect skipper, you know, for the side. He was the, he was the go-between between 
the management and the players. And he had um, Eddie Coleman. Eddie again was a one-off, little five-foot-six player. Yeah, centre half. You, you actually had two centre halves. You had Big Mark, who was a typical no-nonsense centre half. If the ball dropped, Mark kicked it. Mark also had a lot of skill. He could control the ball. He could pass the ball. And then Jackie Blanchard, who was Jackie, was the ball player centre half. Non-stop talker. Played the ball, pushed and run. You know, good header of a ball. And then you know you come to the uh, colossus, don't you? Really, you know, big Duncan. I don't think. Well, I'm convinced. I've not seen anything that comes near him. Supreme confidence. Uh, I've never seen him shirk a tattle. He used to be uh, completely wound up about the game he focused the game focused and that was it for 90 minutes and honestly Tom you can have there's been some great players at United real great players world class players and I seen and played with this lad from being he was 16 till he died at 21 and I honestly have never seen anything like him and then we came to the forwards Johnny Berry older than us, Johnny Berry. Brilliant player, both feet. A father figure where everybody was concerned. Billy Wheeler. Billy was outstanding player. He was he had everything. He said Billy Wheeler's oh he's not fast enough and all like that. But where it mattered in his head, it was fast enough. Tremendous, tremendous. We'd all grown up together and uh, we were all uh, brothers, if you like. And we were learning all the time. We were learning different methods, different training systems. I don't know what, what they do today, but they keep bragging that they're fitter than we are. So wait till they get the old arthritis creeping in the joints. And <laughs> so these, these were tremendous times and we were learning all the time. Uh, a lot of people forget that people like uh, John Doherty, he played first-team football 17 years old. Eddie Lewis, he played first-team football 17 years old. All, all these players, all part of the system. And then uh, Tommy Taylor. Well, you know, there's not a lot you can say about Tommy Taylor. Tommy Taylor, for me, was a perfect centre-forward. There's nothing more you wanted. Uh, Dennis... Dennis was a supreme cold poacher. Dennis was, you know, Dennis was a slight fella, not very heavy, not very big and all like that, but he went where it hurt. Then we had David Peck. Now, David and me, we, we went on for years and uh, two entirely different players. David was a big lad. I was a big lad at school. He was a brilliant player, footballer. He had a footballer's brain. He played for the team he was a team player but he had skill and then I say myself I was entirely different than the all the wingers I was just run Kenny Morgans he was exactly like Johnny Berry both feet very quick 
good header of a ball and then he come to Bobby Bobby was another one that went in and Bobby was a supreme player but I thought in all honesty Bobby Charlton matured after Munich if you had to give a, an award for all the players that I've played with that I've seen at Old Trafford and you had to, had to give an award for contribution uh, style commitment over the years I'll give it Bobby Chow for Manchester United but also there was a lot a hell of a lot of players in the background Jeff Bent any first team first division team had to talk Jeff Bent some. He was brilliant, two-footed, fearless. He could play inside forward. And these players, had to, you know, he had to have these players in the club. You've got the uh, Wolf McGuinnesses that were starting coming up. And uh, Wolf had a, a big task on, you know, because he eventually had to come up against the stumbling block of Duncan Edwards. He, and, you know, things could have changed then. Uh, Ronnie Cope. These these were all squad members of the team. There was no chance I'd get in the side with people like Jackie Bl- with uh, Mark Jones and Jackie Blanchard in the side. And no chance I would get in, you know, at centre half. But uh, the opportunity came after Munich. Manchester United's bright young team won back-to-back league titles in 1956 and 1957. An epic encounter with Real Madrid at the semi-final stage of the European Cup ended in narrow defeat. The Busby Babes were determined to go all the way in the Premier competition at the second attempt. Victories over Shamrock Rovers and Dukla Prague set up a mouth-watering clash against Red Star Belgrade. Goals from Bobby Charlton and Eddie Coleman gave Busby's side a narrow advantage to take to Belgrade in the second leg. What sort of a game was that? We, we knew we'd have trouble with them. I, I I missed missed that because um, we had we with the Irish side were playing Italy in uh, in Belfast when when they played Red Star at Old Trafford and uh, it was touch and go whether I went to Belgrade because I got a, got a bit of a groin problem and uh, Matt said you better come along because uh, Roger Byrne's struggling a bit so it. Uh, just scraped through at Old Trafford, two one, and uh, it was it, it was a relief to see us go three three one up or something like that. And then the last the last ten minutes were were a nightmare really, uh, and it, it was one of those big heavy clawing pitches. It had been frozen overnight, but it had thawed out in the sunshine, and it was that thick thick sort of clay soil that you. You know, you put you had to pull your boots out of. Uh, fortunately, we got through, and we were in the in again against was it Inter Milan or Milan? The next the next game. Right. We we didn't know at the time, and they were all quite happy. We got into the semi-finals again, and we're looking forward to it. Well, it was cold. It's very cold, and um, 
they did. They actually did everything leading up to the game with keepers out of bed. They did, honestly, keepers out of bed. And the actual game itself, I thought the first half hour was some of the best football ever played by Manchester United side that I was involved with. Four goals we scored, and he gave us, we only got three. Because uh, he disallowed when I took a corner. And from the corner, it went across the box, and Bobby just did it in the net. And then I thought he gave me offside for taking the corner. And then we had a couple of injuries in the second half Duncan, Kenny, and it was a fight. I thought the second half, when the lads were under the collar, was one of the best defensive actions I've ever seen. Because the referee went crazy. Yeah, he was giving free kicks for tackles by Red Star players on United players. He gave a penalty because had his leg slid out of the area with the ball. You know, and so it was battling against not only the crowd, which was fanatic, uh, there was only chunks of ice and all sorts of us. And uh, their team, which was a good team, you know, it was a world-class team we played. And people say, oh, you, you play, only played Red Star Belgrade. It was a world-class team. Everybody did a little bit, but defensively, I, and I look back over the years and over the years, and it's one of the best defensive displays I've ever seen by Manchester United side. And they all say, oh, they, they always played football, but they could defend. And that game, to me, was when it was over. There was sort of no relief, because we were through the semi-final, and it was just a matter, oh, we're there again. There was a, a, a banquet, there was a, a, a some sort of a, a dinner at, at, uh, in Belgrade before you returned? Well, there were, invariably, always was a dinner. Yes, we had a wait at a banquet then, and we were drinking the, the local brew, which is Slivovich or something like that. Can't remember much about that night at all afterwards, no. Uh, I, I, I don't think many of us can, but we're a bit hungover coming back next day. I believe Roger sang We'll Meet Again, which was probably, was, was that his party piece? Uh, no, he was he was talking about the dinner with the whale meat. <laughs> so, oh, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. We 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 always sort of formed a good relationship again with the clubs that we played against. Even even till this very day, Madrid, the respect between the two clubs uh, is still is still very much enlightened. A lot of memories. A lot. lot of, I'm reluctant to talk about that particular day because uh, uh, it was a sad day, and it was sad times came after it. After the banquet and a few hours' sleep. The Manchester United travelling party went to Belgrade Airport on the morning of February the 6th to begin their journey home. There was a planned stop in Munich to refuel the aircraft. We touched down at uh, Munich. It was snowing. 
we went in it was it wasn't a big airport um, we went in this sort of reception area and we had some tea and biscuits and then it was just a Tosha coming round and said everybody back on and uh, we actually everybody sat in the same place for the first time of asking and the engines were revved and we we started moving off and then there was a cutting you know a choking sort of a thing affair and we slowed right down and we turned and we went back and everybody went off again and for some unknown reason Mark Jones bought St Christopher St Christopher medal and we all all trooped out again five ten minutes wait and people inside the plane started changing seats we lost uh, it was Kenny Morgans Billy Folks, David Peg myself David left us to change seats and a few opposite on the other side the lads are playing cards it was eight of them one or two started changing seats a couple of reporters started changing seats and we went again and the same thing happened the choking and we went back again and we it seemed as though we didn't sort of have enough time to sit down and we was off again and while he was re- 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 uh, pilot was revving up a lot of seat changing went on his side Bobby and Dennis come to the front uh, Eddie and Tommy and David went to the back Addie Clegg changed seats Billy swap sides come on my side and we was one shot so we didn't move he was just revving the engines up and it was Al Clark he was phoning his paper in Manchester so naturally when the doors opened again it was all locked up ready to go Alf came in and he got jeered booed and oh and everything it was chaos and uh we set off we seen we'll be going forever and I seen a steward come running out of the cabin and strap himself in a seat little bald headed chap and Billy Whelan leant over at me he's only sat next to the side of the aisle and he says you know how he says if this is death he says I'm ready for it and I looked at him and I thought what are you going on at, Bill? You know, and then it was just blank. Complete blank. Bill, you're down in the records as having a, a sort of a premonition that something was going to go wrong well I just felt uncomfortable that's all you know it was, I don't know whether it was a premonition I don't, oh, but I just didn't feel right I didn't feel comfortable particularly after uh, the first 
we came back to the terminal and had a cup of coffee and then went back out very quickly. Uh, I was very uncomfortable. I, wasn't, I had a feeling that there was something not quite right, that's all. Whether it was a premonition, I don't know. So what did you do? I mean, you I prepared myself by getting myself strapped in very, very tight and got my head below the, the height of the seat. So I had my head below the seat. But I was lucky in the much that I was in, in the centre of the aircraft facing the tail with my back to the cockpit so, my, so that my back took the impact. And, um, of course, I was below the head of the seat, so I was lucky, just sheer lucky. What, what are your memories of it? I was conscious all the time. You know, the memory, the sickening memory that I have was the the first bump we had, the first thud of the aircraft when it hit the ground, and then the second one, which was even worse. You know, and I thought, well, if one more, and this is, you know, this is it. That's what I felt. You know, and after the, the second um, bump, which we called it a bump, yeah, I thought this is it. The third one was. That's it's going to be the end, and uh, he did. It was he just, and I was finished. Uh, look, I I remember the next thing I remember was looking through the window at the side of uh, my seat. I was sitting on the uh, window side, on the left hand side of the aircraft, uh, facing the tail. You can imagine, but the plane, the impact of the plane was on the opposite side. Fortunately for me, and it just split the uh, aircraft in two. Right under my, on, the, on a diagonal, underneath my feet, uh, Albert Scanlon, who had been sitting opposite me at the table, and um, David Pegg, who had been sitting playing cards with us a few minutes earlier, had decided that it was safer to go to the back of the aircraft. It was just nothing. It had gone. And I was virtually just sitting with my feet, with about a foot away from uh, from nothing, you know. Nothing. How, how it, how it uh, missed me, I don't know. Did it dawn on you right at that time that it was a serious accident? Yes. That something had oh, yes, something was going to happen. And, uh, yes, before we even took off, because the snow was... I was so worried about it, you know. And uh, But then after after it happened, uh, did you realise immediately, this is this is bad, this is serious, it's not just me that's involved, it's it's everybody? Well, when I was uh, came conscious, I, I, I felt, oh, we're OK. You know, we've survived, you know. Um, and I looked around, and Captain Thane just, uh, he knocked on the window. Uh, the engine on our side was smoking, and he just knocked on the window and told me to get out of there. And I, which I did, I just had a bit of uh, difficulty getting my seat belt unfastened. And then I went, and I ran. Then I realised I had no uh, no shoes on my feet. And then I ran about, uh, oh, 50 yards, I suppose, that far. And then I turned around... And I was running through snow, and I turned around, and I could see the tail end of the aircraft just as it blazed, and it looked as if it is a fuel dump, and it was just sticking out above the fuel dump. Uh, not a dump, fuel, uh, a truck with uh, with fuel. Stop. Yeah. And then I saw, next thing I saw was Harry Gregg coming from behind the aircraft with a, with a baby in his arms. I didn't realize there was a baby on board, because the baby was crying. And then I, I went over to Harry, and then I, I saw Samat, he was the next one I saw. He was lying, sitting, and with leaning on one arm. I think it was his right arm he was leaning on. And 
and I saw other 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 players. I thought, oh, are all here, sort of thing. We and uh, next thing was uh, stretchers were thrown on the ground. Um, little sort of wagons came along. They weren't ambulances. They were just sort of Volkswagen trucks, and uh, they threw stretchers down. And eventually, we we got Matt on the stretcher. And as I sort of lay him down, um, he had a terrible groan. You know, obviously, we'd hurt, we'd done some damage to him, you know. But we got him in the back of the truck and drove him off to, uh, with Harry Gregg, myself, Dennis Violet, uh, Bobby came too, and they were all lying there, you know. And Bobby just got up, Dennis got up out of... The, Bobby was in his seat, and uh, I was still in his seat, and uh, got up, and then sat in the truck, and did sort of... Van and then we just drove off back to the uh, hospital. We saw everybody that we'd seen, uh, quite a few missing. And they said, said, "Well, where are the others? Are they either in the are they in another hospital or are they in another ward?" Oh, they said, "No, this is these are the, this is it. This is the survivors. All the others uh, have perished." About a week later, when I woke up, I was in the hospital. Uh, Dennis, Ray, Kenny, Bobby was in. And this chap I didn't know, which turned out to be the pilot. And I'm looking around, and as long as I had Dennis here, he, he's got bandages on as well, you know. And I profess, this bloke walked in with glasses, and he had about... 35 people with him and they all come and he he looks at me and he says ah oh, good morning Mr Scanlon he says nice to see you after all this time I didn't know how long I'd been there and I didn't know who he was so I had to ask who he was and then he says it's somebody called Professor Mauer so I was trying oh and you're not and I, I don't know if some people sort of say uh, you see people on the other side you see people you've got here you, you you don't ask where other people are you do you don't ask and uh, you'd actually and I never even thought we'd been in a plane, I knew something like that but I didn't, I didn't know it was so serious and then you see people appear uh, Gene Busby Jimmy Murphy uh, odd people going past the door you know but it's the people you don't see people you don't see and then you, 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 your own visitor comes in and other people and you're looking round like uh, I had a little German nun and I says uh where where's everybody? And she says, Ah, upstairs. You know well, right, she just said upstairs. So I thought, well, this is probably what's this has happened and we're probably the worst because everybody had bandages. And uh must have been 
by a nine days. She might have been less. She says, do you want to go upstairs? So I says, yeah, can I? Says, yeah. And she puts me in the wheelchair, takes me up this lift, took me in this room, and there was John in, John Berry, and Duncan. And she's saying, like, Duncan's poorly, and then they, they usher you out. And then I thought, well, there's two, you know. Quite happy, that. And I said, oh, been to see Duncan and John. And then I says, he says to her, uh, more, like, you know what I mean? And she says, upstairs. And then when I finally got upstairs with us, there was Jackie, there was Frank Taylor unconscious, and there was a boss unconscious. And I says, you know, and she said, no, no more, you know what I mean? And then it dawned, you know, you, you, people might think, God, he's thick, he, he didn't realise he'd been in a plane crash. You know what I mean? But you didn't expect... I didn't expect the, the damage that was done. You know, so all them people, nobody told me that a lot of people had died. And I think we found it out by ourselves. And then uh, people started coming. And uh, you're thinking, surely they, they might be somewhere else, you know what I mean? And, but they're not, and you don't see anybody, and you don't want to ask. And I never asked. I did not ask because I was afraid to ask. And uh, it was just our own little world in that one. Kenny Morgans, Bobby Charlton, Ray Wood, Dennis Fowler, and myself, and the pilot who, who eventually died in our one. such a traumatic uh, time for me personally he had made me, uh, Jimmy had made me captain and I had to take the team out and uh, my purse my health wasn't so good, I was um, suffering from colds and flu it's just a reaction I think from, from the accident and uh, so physically I wasn't feeling too good and then <clears throat> when we walked out onto the pitch the atmosphere was incredible can't imagine what it was like you know, and uh, I felt sorry for really for the Sheffield well, Sheffield team because they didn't have a chance. You know. They hadn't got to win that game, and there's no way that we're going to lose that game. So, but the uh, the atmosphere after Munich, I, I, it wasn't a good time for me. It was a very traumatic time for me. Well, actually, they they wanted we wanted to listen to the match. We wanted to know the score, and. Uh, there is a, a Catholic priest, Father O'Hagan, an Australian, and uh, I don't think he knew about football, but he was a great help in everything. And uh, he says, oh, I'll see about getting some off BEA. So then they, these people kept looking, you know, in and out. Anyway, about uh, an hour, an hour and a half before, they say we have got a direct line to Old Trafford. If you could, well, two at a time, 
and go on this other match. Well, in the hospital then was just Dennis, myself, and Kenny Morgans, and uh, Ray Wood. Well, they wouldn't let Kenny out of bed, even though he didn't have a mark on him. They wouldn't let Kenny out of bed. And Ray was more interested in, he'd lost his teeth. His teeth were broken. And he didn't like people seeing him with his, you know, his, his teeth, a big gap in his mouth. So the two that was covered in plaster and bandages decided, Sister Altmunder would take me in a wheelchair. And uh, Dennis could walk across. And we got through. They, the, the line come through and um, we actually uh, listened to all the match. Well, that, while it was on, we was actually talking to the chap at the other end who was uh, screaming and bawling at us about how good the game was and United had won and Dennis had toddled off to tell the other two uh, they wouldn't let him out of the ward. Uh, what the score was and all like this and it it finished up there was more excitement in the off, in the hospital about United winning that night and um, we asked again for the West Brom game and he won't give it us they said no you, you get too excited they said but we're only it's not this you get you, your blood pressure goes up you start playing the game and and and, and, and they won't give it us well, we actually listened to everything. And then we listened to, uh, the next time, to Professor Maurer at Old Trafford. That's the next, the next one they did for us. Well, they won't do any more football matches, he said. They, they, got, they got worked up. But it was good. Jackie come round and uh, I used to go and visit him every day and then they, they come and told us Duncan had died and it's a shock you don't expect it even though where you are and uh, I think it was just a matter then of uh, being thankful he was alive There's a lot of memories, but they're all they're all bad ones. They're all bad ones because I seen everything went went on in and out of in and out of consciousness. I seen everything that went on, and I I, I remember the time, but uh, I hide behind this facade of humour now. Sometimes it sometimes it helps me forget. There was, there was one story, Tom, that stands the te test of time. Dennis said, uh, we got a lot of visitors, especially the troops. And the, the British and American troops were very good, very good. These two Irish girls brought a trunk, the length of that little thing there, and it was just full of cigarettes. But the, the nun that looked after me was a, this sister out Monday. And uh, her father was an industrialist, a multi-millionaire. And uh, it, it was uh, funny, he came in and we thought, who is this fella coming in? Like, you know, they'd been chaining us around in the ward by this time, it was all over the place. So she's saying, my papa. 
So he said, gentlemen, anything I can do for you, you can have anything at all. So then he says, uh, anything, he says, anything at all, gentlemen, you can have. So then he says, we struggle getting drinks. So he says, can you send us some Coca-Cola? Cooks. Be here this afternoon. So I oh, thanks very much. So she said, my papa, bring it in today. Anyway, he had a chat. Uh, give us a few more cigarettes, brought us some books in. Late on in the afternoon, she opens the door, this nun. And she says, uh, Mr. Scanlon. And she yeah. Papa, certainly. And his two blokes come in with a big trunk. And he's shoving this trunk. And they put it right under the window at the far end. And she says, uh, Papa. So he says, oh, thanks very much, and everything like that. And then he says, thank God for that. He says, I'm dying for the drink. And he hobbles across to this trunk and lifts it up. And there must be a ton of gorgonzola cheese in it. <laughs> he brought a gorgonzola instead of Coca-Cola. <laughs> but other than that, I say it from the air crash to about a week after was a blank. And after that, it was pressure. Well, it's the relief of being alive that you're, uh, you know, you feel very sorry when people come in and you think, can't be looking at me. And who is it? And it's some relation of well, lads, has died. And you, I know it's a long time and all like that, but you still feel it, honestly. You didn't play again after the accident. Was that a, something very difficult to adjust to? Oh yes, yes. I didn't, I didn't play again, and I, I didn't know what to do because I was totally unprepared for this. I'd, I'd done a, a bit at school with a, with a accountancy with Roy Clark, and a lot of us used to go, and it, it was more or less a, a social afternoon when we went to uh, Lower Mosley Street, and we were at that time the football association were paying the fees that. that, that the players, if they wanted to, could uh, attend these courses and pick up a trade or profession that when they finished. So we went, and I got an RSA third year or something like that. We'd been going about a couple of years. And you're totally unprepared for it because you, you, you're, you, if in your lifetime you get into your 30s, you start looking for what am I going to do when I finish? But you, you, you can't. No allowances have been made or anything, so... 40 years on, looking back... I look upon it differently, totally different now. It's not a sad time, no, like it was. Those years uh, after Munich was, was pretty bad for me. But I lived through it. And uh, in the 50s, say, between from... from 63, 62, 63 onwards, when I'd recovered from it, uh, they were my best years. They were, they were really were. 68 and, and even 69. I carried on to 70, you know, early 70. Bill, Jackie and Albert 
was speaking to Tom in 1998 to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the disaster. At the time, United had a team that appeared to evoke strong memories. A crop of homegrown players had come through the system to win two league titles and reach a European Cup semi-final. Jackie and Bill had high hopes for the incumbent youngsters. Yes, and I'd love to, I'd love to see that because uh, the Busby always believed it was a game for young men, uh, and uh, he he more or less was the inventor or whatever it is of of this youth policy. You cannot buy loyalty, or you cannot buy pride. These are things that uh, that you've got to work on. It's like you can't demand respect. Respect's got to be earned. And the, I, I get, I get a bit of a buzz seeing these young lads coming. And there's so many different ones coming, coming. They're back in the line again. I think gone, gone. And the the only disadvantage against that in our days. We could only play 11 players. Now they have uh, 14 or 15, which more or less you can put some young lads on the bench and give them a run-up, which, which you couldn't in, in our days. It was, a, it was a great team, wasn't it? It was a, a fantastic team. And it, and it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to really to say how big it was. The, 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 Imagine this team now that Alex has got now. A young team, uh, experienced, uh, used to winning. They've won a lot, and they're winning, and they've got it. everything is in front of them. That's what we had. That was exactly where we were, the same stage of development. So you can imagine what it was like, you know. It was a terrible impact, both the football world and... Uh, well, you can see the reaction now. It was the beginning of it, the beginning of this club. Do you, do you feel that the, the club has, has gone full circle? It's now back where it was at the time of Munich. The fact that it's now... I mean, OK, it's huge now, we know. But as far as the side is concerned, it's now... This is the side that, that would have happened had the boys lived on. That's right. And I'll be looking... I expect these boys now to carry on the way I think that we would have carried on in those days. I mean, we had a, a tremendous team, full of talent, young. Everything in front of us. And these boys are the same. You know, everybody's anticipating we're going to win the Champions Cup this year. And but not just this year, but years to come, you know. And this is what I can see. Predictions of future success were certainly proven right. In the 1950s, the Busby Babes competed against the might of Real Madrid. In the late 1990s, the Italian giants Juventus were the team providing a European education for a young Manchester United team. Destiny afforded this side the opportunity to pass their test, which they accomplished with an epic 3-2 win in Turin on the way to a historic treble in 1999. The treble was completed with the Champions League victory on Sir Matt Busby's birthday. Another brush of fate. Another cause for reflection on what might have been. More trophies and glory would follow, and all through the conviction of those beliefs that were instilled by Sir Matt Busby and immortalised by the Busby Babes. They will never be forgotten. I've been back three times. Well, the last time I went back, uh, 
was last May. And I think the the doctor or the, the, the chap who was there it's a long time and he actually uh, the only man he ever recognised which is understandable was Bobby because Bobby's always there you know what I mean and it's something that I don't think you'll, you'll ever go it affects everybody and um, it's only what the last two years I've been discussing things about the hospital in one way I was lucky I didn't see anything. Another way, it's sad because I lost a lot of friends uh, in a split second. Bang! One minute we're all laughing, playing cards, and pulling people to pieces, and all like that. And the next minute, it's finished. And it's 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 very hard and very hard, and you wonder how life will go on. And it, it goes on, but you get help from a lot of people. You do. You need help from a lot of people. You feel it a lot more and you feel very close when uh, all the lads that survive get together. I think you do, honestly, it draws you very close together and you, you can discuss things and yet nobody in my time has discussed what happened on that day. One man in particular was Eddie Coleman who was such a Liverpool character. You know, he couldn't help loving Eddie, you know. And he was such a brilliant player, young, everything in front of him. Uh, Eddie is the one. I, f I found his scarf the day when we went back to the aircraft after the, after the crash. Harry Gregg and I went back to the aircraft. And I picked his scarf out of the rubble. And I looked at it and it was Eddie's scarf. You know, it was, I gave it to his mother. And uh, Yeah, I think Eddie is the one that sort of catches my, who I remember. You know, but I remember them all. I can see their faces every day, as clear as, clear as anything. I will never forget the names or the faces. 